Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Near and Queer to My Heart. I'm your host, Amanda G. Always excited. Today is an awesome day. Today, Thursday, September 13th. We will never forget this day. This is the day that two of my favorite things come together. Mariah Carey and the fuck word. The F word, but basically the fuck word. Mariah Carey's new song, GTFO, in which the chorus goes, get the fuck out, coming out of Mariah Carey's mouth. This is amazing. Y'all should check it out. If you don't know, if it's your first time listening, big Mariah Carey fan, as you go through the episodes, you're going to hear about her. I got lots of really strange, interesting, kismet Mariah Carey stories. And, you know, it took me a while to be out in the open with them. But now that I am and you all get to hear them. But we're not here for Mariah Carey. Well, I'm always here for Mariah Carey. But we're here for the podcast. This is the second episode coming to you from the Midwest Queer Comedy Festival that took place in Columbus, Ohio. It was amazing. This is the first time I interviewed two people at once. I interviewed Champagne Jamboree, which is made up of Amanda Costner and Sarah McPeck. And I was honestly, I was a little nervous, a little nervous to do, you know, interview two people, trying to find a balance with that, trying to make sure everybody, you know, gets their time. I get everybody's stories. And it worked out great because they're a, they're a comedy duo. Uh, they do songs together, a lesbian musical duo. I tried to ask them what they're called because I, I don't know if there's a genre for that. But they work so well together and you can hear it in their songs, which um, if you stick around to the end of the episode, we play you uh, one of their biggest songs. You can just hear it. They they click. They fill each other. You know, they complete each other. Musically. Comedically. They're, they gel and it's cool. And it was I had a great time talking to them. And I hope you all enjoy it, too. So here is Champagne Jamboree, Amanda Costner and Sarah McPeck. Thank you guys for joining me. This is Champagne Jamboree. What are you, a musical duo? Is that what, what do you guys call yourselves? Yes, we are a lesbian comedy music duo. I'm Amanda Costner. And I am Sarah McPeck. And we are Champagne, Champagne Jamboree. Jamboree. They totally practice that. <laughs> No, it's so cool. You guys are from Minneapolis, right? Not just Minnesota, but Minneapolis. Yes, uh, we formed about a year and a half ago. We were both doing solo, like stand-up comedy work. I'm a comedic musician, solo as well. And we were both in the queer community, but we hadn't really become friends yet. And once we did, I was like, oh, let's do some songs. Let's get it going. And then Champagne Jamboree was born. I always wonder like how musical duos form, like how that works. Like you guys saw each other and you're like, we're going to flow well. Or were you just like... I don't like doing this alone because stand up, you know, we're usually doing it alone. So when people join up, I'm like, this is so interesting to me. Sarah McPeck here. I have always really enjoyed collaboration. And I met Amanda by booking her on the variety show that I host. 
And as soon as I saw her perform, I have always wanted to do musical comedy, but I play the flute. And that doesn't par very well for the singing. So I needed a good musician. And I saw Amanda. She was an amazing musician. I thought we were both lesbians. Um, We should be friends. And then I just kept saying, hey, I have an idea for a song. Like, I was really nervous to ask her because I was kind of like, hey, I know you have all this, like, talent. And I'm kind of just wanting to add some comedic and have some fun with you. And I was, like, really nervous that she as like more of a professional singer would be like, eh, you're more of a comedy singer, not really a, a real singer. So I felt really good that you did and that you went with it. So that's kind of how it happened. I just kept asking her for like two months and then finally she came over and we wrote a song. It was pretty easy. Yeah, the first time we hung out, I think Sarah made this like awesome breakfast and she was like, I know how to cook meat. And I was like, yes, I am there. And we ate all this meat and stuff. And then basically I pulled my guitar out and we are kind of one of our best songs to play is called Beautiful Bemidji and that was born no actually our first song was called Lesbian Dating Song yeah because we were just talking about like man it's hard specifically when you're a lesbian (laughs) to date and all the different like nuances of that and then so we probably wrote our first song in about 30 minutes or so that's how a lot of our songs have been written like real quick like that and I like that you were like I just kept on Amanda till like that's I feel like that's my dating technique So you were doing, Amanda, you were doing music, comedy music already? Yeah, I released an EP called LGBT Redneck in April of 2017. And um, after I did that, I was like, what next? What do I want to do next? And I wanted to collaborate. And so, hell yeah, I wanted to accept Sarah on her offer. She's really talented and funny. And anybody who sees her on stage for two minutes can see that. And also, Sarah is super um, involved in the queer community in Minneapolis and completely opened up my world and also opened up my eyes to like ways to be a better performer, you know, take more risks. I was a little bit rigid in like my ways of like, I'm this type of performer. I don't do parodies or I've never considered, you know, doing like a sketch in the middle of a song. And those were the kind of things that Sarah would just like constantly have ideas about. Sarah, what kind of performance were you doing before y'all got together? Um, Mostly stripping. And no, I always did want to be a stripper in college. I'm just going to put that out there. So that's not the question you asked me. I was a stand-up comedian and I am an improv actor. So I have been taking lessons for a long time and now I've been a teacher for about three years at the Brave New Workshop in Minneapolis. Shout out Brave New Workshop. Always have to say oldest improv theater in the nation. We beat Second City by one year. And I was doing stand-up. So I really was producing a, a variety show. And I was really starting to come into my own as a performer. And I just wanted to challenge myself. And I just needed a nice Southern gal. Okay, I lived in Chicago for a while. And I got to say, Brave New Workshop may be the oldest, but... Everybody knows improv is synonymous with Second City. So Second City is great. I and I O and Annoyance and I wouldn't put any of them down. Um, but Brave New Workshop is a really special place in Minneapolis. It has given the boosted the careers of so many performers out there, um, and it is a place where you end up. You walk out of there feeling so accepted and almost like therapy, like so okay with yourself. And I don't know how many other theaters can do that do you want to arm wrestle over who is a better theater i am willing to say that they're both genuinely great (laughs) theaters and they both have their own strengths 
what it always comes down to with lesbians. It's somehow we're like, how can we challenge each other to arm wrestle? Like, like th- th- this is what, like five minutes in and you're like, all right, I already figured out a way to do this. I'm going to make this happen. How did Champagne Jamboree, like how did you decide on that name? Did you have other names? Did you just get high one day and that was the first thing that popped into your head? Because that's how three of my brother's bands have been named. You know, is there a story behind that? We did get high. And uh, we did make a list. We actually struggled for probably a week or so on picking names. And we would text each other back and forth all day long. After we had written a couple songs, we were like, well, let's name ourselves. And I think it was really Sarah who kind of... Yeah, I, I kind of was looking on a play of Amanda is a little bit country... That's the jamboree part. And I'm a little bit bougie, but I'm not like 100% bougie and she's on 100% country. And I wanted a name that kind of like showed both of that. And I was watching a documentary about some chef on Netflix and they would do these champagne jamborees like in New Orleans, actually. And I thought the name just kind of like, I'm like, that would be fun. And told Amanda. Now, Amanda was not 100% on board with champagne jamboree at first. And I understand. I wasn't either because people were like... What does that mean? I wanted us to be called Blue Plate Special, but um, now I'm so happy with Champagne Jamboree. <laughs> Plate Special would make sense because you made meat on your first meeting. Like that's is, is that is that you know when you meet women is that is that like a second date or the the first date aftermath is just like what and what kind of meat? Like I'm I'm back on the meat right now. I just scrambled eggs probably and bacon and sausage sausage. oh we did sausage yeah potatoes I love to cook and be like a homemaker and I do have that like I love to bring people into my house I love to have parties I love to I want to feed if I love you I want to feed you whether it's a platonic love a sexual love a parent love anything like that's that's kind of my my way I Sarah has a meat freezer (laughs) that just hangs out in her apartment it's just there. Like, it's not like she doesn't also have a regular refrigerator. She does. And that refrigerator has a regular freezer. But she also has a, what, like, five feet by four feet meat freezer. Yes, I have a meat freezer. I will say I was a traditional uh, homemaker for, like, over 10 years. I was married to a man and had two kids. So I really had to cook and get deals. And when you have a meat freezer, when hamburger and chicken and everything's really cheap, you can buy tons of it and put it in your meat freezer. And then you always have meats and you can always feed your family. Now, I, uh, one of my roommates uh, about five years ago, my coworker, he's from the country. He's from Lafayette, uh, Louisiana area. And he had a meat freezer and he brought it, but we didn't have meat. Like, so we just put vodka in it. So it was like, I thought that was like a, a pretty good use. Where are you guys from? How did you end up in Minneapolis if you're not from there? I grew up in Alabama, in Rainbow City, Alabama, and then moved to Oklahoma and finished up my teenage years in Oklahoma, um, which is why I always tell people I have two different kinds of rednecks in my family, country, western, and trailer park, because, yeah, I lived through it both. And I slowly made my way all the way up north. I went to college at Kansas, lived in Chicago, and then my girlfriend got a job in Minneapolis, and so I was like, all right, let's do this. I'm going to Minneapolis. And I actually love it except for winter she is the biggest baby during winter oh my god I am from Minneapolis actually um, a suburb called Edina and then my parents got divorced and I got shipped out to a small rural farming community in Wisconsin so I would be there during the week in Minneapolis on the weekend so I kind of had a city mouse country mouse upbringing which actually I am so happy that I got to live in a small rural community because that is where I learned my like drive for community organization and leadership and I just saw so many amazing things that People with nothing and very few people like what we could accomplish and what pride we had in our community. 
you know, so that's something really amazing that I can take forth. But also thankful I wasn't one of those kids just born in the country because I did have a perspective of life outside rural Wisconsin. And I can drink like I'm not a drinker. But when I do drink, people are always impressed that I can drink. And that is my Wisconsin 10, 10 years in Wisconsin right there. Wait, I didn't know Wisconsin was like a drinking place because like I can fucking drink, but I live in New Orleans and people are like, yeah, no shit. I would say Wisconsin and New Orleans is right on par with the drinking, except in New Orleans, you can do it out in the public. You know, you can walk around drinking and stuff on the street. But in Wisconsin, you're in like some tavern. I mean, the legal drinking age, I think, in Wisconsin is 12 if your parents are with you. Okay, I have a question for you, Amanda. In New Orleans, is it like the stereotype where just everybody just like parties and drinks all the time? No, we, uh, you know, and I talk about it in like one of my jokes where it's just like it's 24-7, whatever you want, but it is. Like the gas stations have alcohol 24-7. It's, there's a lot of people that are day drinkers, you know, and like all the, com- I mean, I hang out with comics, so we're all drinking all the time, but you know it's not uncommon like there's a bar two blocks from my house and they play jeopardy and wheel of fortune every day at six to seven and there are people there every day like i don't go every day to do that but if i happen like after work i'm like oh let's go to happy hour it's the same people watching the same thing they're all drinking all the time like we're just we're very cool about drinking but we're not we don't like go hard or go home like it's like we can afternoon drink and then go to dinner like a normal person and not like throw up in the restaurant so we have a good balance i guess uh but we also that's one of the things i think it's funny like they're always advertising that new orleans has the best hospitals for liver transplants and i'm just like yeah no shit like if we didn't have that like this society would collapse essentially so and I, this is weird like interviewing two people at once because i'm kind of like um but i'm interested especially sarah i know you were talking about like you were married and have kids that your coming out experience um uh, must have been I- interesting and the way i ask it is uh and it's gonna be a lot of questions i'm just gonna like vomit them out at you um but when did you come out to yourself when did you come out to other people, to your close friends and family, to your, you know, siblings, whatever. And then when did you come out on stage if that happened or if you always performed as a queer performer? Who wants to delve into and you could take a piece of that or, you know, whatever. It's just I feel like if I ask those separate, um, then they kind of lead into each other sometimes. And I feel like too, the coming out process isn't just like this, you know, one and done. Right. So I came out to myself for real. Um, my freshman year of college because I could not deny the fact that I was 100% in love with my roommate. And it was one of those like relationships that was very strong and like we would hug each other and do everything together. And she'd always say to me like, you know, if you were a man, I would marry you, you know, and I didn't even at that time, I don't think either one of us like even knew what that statement meant, except we knew we couldn't be together, but we felt a very strong attachment. And then when she would leave for her swimming tournaments, I would take her pillow and bring it down on my bed and like just smell it all night long because it smelled like her and I it just felt like so good. And I knew that was a little weird, um, but obviously like there's something going on. She knows all of this too. So if she hears this, it's totally cool. We're still very, very good friends and she's married to a man. And then when I came out, so then she got a boyfriend and I was so upset and felt so hurt. And then there was kind of rumblings about me being a lesbian. I played volleyball at the college and I was voted strongest hands on my volleyball team. (laughs) But then I was like, oh, well, no, I'm not gay. And I happened to meet up with my old high school boyfriend whom I I that's where I do understand pe- pansexuality 100% because 
I was so attracted to him as a person and as a friend that I didn't feel even when I was with him that I was actually giving anything up. And at the time, I thought I was bisexual. So I was like, well, what does that mean? You're with this person, you're with that person. Are you just if you're with a man? Are you never are you still bisexual? Or, you know, so in doing that, I was the last American virgin. And I decided, well, I should try the sex thing. And I got knocked up within the first month of having sex. And I was like, well, my life is pretty much made for me. I I did love him and I didn't want to not have the child because I loved him and I thought it would be a very special like life. And so I decided to quit college my senior year and move to rural Wisconsin with him and work in an onion ring factory. I was married and I had kids for 10 years and then the L word came out. And after like 10 years, I told him I was bisexual and I'd always had these feelings and then after but I'll try to make this fast the L word came out and I was just like holy shit I had never paid for Showtime in my life before but I bought Showtime every Monday night or whatever night it was on I made sure my kids and my husband were out of the house I was like this is my time it wasn't even like the sex or anything it was just like the whole thing like the whole community I was like oh my god I'm so such a lesbian and then I started messing around with some married women. Um, I found out there's a very subgroup of married women that are very gay, but they do not want to come out and they like it right behind closed doors. And I am a very femme uh, woman. And I think a lot of those women feel very comfortable with me because I don't look like the scary butch dyke in their mind. You know, it's like, oh, you're like me, you're soft and pretty. And you know, it's not so bad. And then I told my I fell in love with a woman. And it was, of course, somebody I worked with. And my husband worked with. And it was a very crazy experience. But it finally got me out. And he supported me the whole time, actually. And, and I'm very fortunate for that and then I came out on stage fucking balls deep like right away I was I think I had been quiet for so long that I was one of these lesbians that was like rainbowed out with everything and it's like I'm gay by the way did you know I'm gay I'm a lesbian by the way and so with my comedy my inability to be visible and to live my life as a femme lesbian impacted me in so many ways and, like, my husband committed suicide a year after we divorced. So I don't mean to bring this down, but if I, if I would have saw a femme lesbian in college that I could identify with, I would have been like, oh, I get that. I get that. Because at the time, in the nine, like mid-90s, there was really none of that in my community. The only lesbians I saw like had basically shaved heads, dressed like men, and I love my butch sisters, don't get me wrong, but I just didn't identify as that. So I'm like, well, I must not be gay then, you know? And I just did the course of life that I was socialized to do, and I don't feel like I'm to blame for any of this, but I certainly wouldn't brought so many other people into my kind of figuring that out, you know, and making commitments to people that... 10 years later, I just can't stick to. So now that everyone's, you know, I don't, I didn't mean to, but that, that's my story. 
and this is what the kid I always say the kids but like I think they don't understand how important because L word was also very important for yeah. me because it's not just the visibility but it's also seeing lesbians and queer people they had uh, yeah. transgender folks they had you know bisexual like just living their lives and and being you know femme or butch or not because I feel like for me I'm female presenting but I wouldn't say I'm femme because I don't love dresses and heels and I don't wear makeup and but I also and like don't identify with butch so like I feel like that showed you that there was a space for that and it was so important to have that and I think that's really cool and like I think the kids don't understand but they basically like a lot of shows are you know have uh queer characters that aren't are just characters who are queer they're not just like these token characters that we were used to seeing and and they don't understand like this important so like I know L word might be coming back I heard it was coming back but like I haven't seen anything on it and I, I think that's good it's good to you know have that again but yeah no thank you for for sharing your story I know you know it, that's why I asked that question like and then I kind of preface it and then I explain it and then I'm like I'm sorry I asked this question but I think that's such an important part of you know who we are because for me like if I look back and the more I look back I'm like yeah I knew in kindergarten I knew here I knew here I knew here but I just ignored it and then that also affects then you feel there's the guilt and then there's the like there's also that need to like when you do go on stage that you're just like I've spent so much time you know hiding this and also having it uh, the people around you feel that even now like you know sometimes my girlfriend's like you're holding back and it's like Cause I'm used to doing that <laughs> like I'm trying to be open and I feel like I'm open but I'm never fully open because we've been taught to not be because we didn't fit into this mold Amanda now we have questions for you <laughs> which are all the same ones <laughs> Before we leave, I'd like to get the number for how I can get connected with that subgroup of lesbian married women from Sarah. Your girlfriend would not like you. <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding. Yes, I, I have a beautiful partner. I love you, baby. I'm a preacher's daughter from the South, and I was a huge like Bush supporter. I was very conservative. I was very anti-gay rights. My sister and I would fight about it, and um, I think she knew I was gay, so uh, I love my sister. But uh, I, I was in complete denial about my attraction to women. I would publicly be like, fuck gays, and then privately go home and like masturbate to women, fantasies about women. And when I moved, I, when I moved to Chicago from the South and I started being, becoming a comedian, I read Jane Lynch's bio. And in her book, she specifically talks about hiding her homosexuality and dating men. And then after dating men, going home and fantasizing about women. And I was like, that's me. I'm gay. <laughs> That's what I do. I date men and then I go home and jerk off to women. And I would I would date these dudes and I'd be like, oh man, why can't we just play video games? Why do you want to like kiss and stuff? So I really could, didn't know I was gay till I was about 25 years old. And I came out kind of to everybody at once. Uh, I, uh, Amanda's missing a very important piece of her puzzle for the listening audience. Before she came out... I would like you to tell people what you were doing for five years in college. It's weird that nobody knew I was gay or because I was a professional golfer. I look extremely gay in all my childhood photos. I look the way I look now, which, you know, usually backwards baseball cap and t-shirt. I was very manly as a child and I played golf in college. It was my life. And yeah, I was a professional golfer and I played on this tour. Um, it was like a minor leagues for the LPGA. It was called the Futures Tour at the time. I was surrounded by lesbians and I was... 
terrified. <laughs> yes, it was just lesbians everywhere. Everywhere I looked, there was lesbians, like, left and right. There was, like, s- different subgroups of lesbians, like, the cool lesbians, the femme lesbians, the alternative lesbians. There were so many lesbians, and I was terrified and trying to pretend I was straight. So I did go through that. In, but fast forward, I'm in my mid-20s. I'm in Chicago. I've had the balls to say, I'm going to try to be a comedian. And I realized at one point, like, I got to be honest with myself. Once I read Jane Lynch's bio and realized that I was gay... I came out to my friends and then I started doing stuff on stage before I came out to anybody in my family, <laughs> which was smart. And then when I, I fell in love with my partner, I was like, I got to be honest with everybody, you know, the partner that I'm still with today. So um, I went home and came out to my parents and I'm estranged from my dad, but my mom and I kind of talk. And then, of course, my sister is awesome. And I have a few cousins and aunts that are cool, but, you know, I do feel like in a way I lost my family. So... And I was prepared for that. And um, I'm so thankful for this podcast and for meeting you guys because it was really the queer community. I remember before I came out to my parents, this friend of mine giving me this speech, this um, this gay man in Chicago. He was like, are you ready? Like, you might lose your family. Do you have friends that are going to support you? Do you have a support system? Are you ready for the backfall? And some people wouldn't say that. Some people would be like, just do it. Just do it. You know, not knowing the details of my circumstances. And I'm so thankful for him. Dante, if you're out there, I miss you. He gave me some great advice and I needed them. I needed my family. I needed my partner. I needed my queer community. And that's kind of where I'm at now. Yeah, no, I think it's cool that like you guys found somebody out like Elward or Jane Lynch or someone that like put your experience into into words that you were like, that's that's me. Your dad was a preacher. So Amanda, I assume you were raised religious, but were you taught about gay people? Was that or any discussion about that growing up? Or was that you kind of identified as this like, like, I'm going to be outwardly like fuck gays and, and do this. And I don't know if that was like self-imposed or if that was something that like people around you were doing. Yeah. When I was coming up in the church as a teenager, my it was just becoming acceptable in pop culture to men. It was like friends had a gay character and shit. And some churches were starting to be a, be more cool with gay people. and But my dad is somewhat of a fundamentalist, and he believes in a literal interpretation of the Bible. And all I wanted to do was please my dad. And so I would hear what he would say, which was like, homosexuality is wrong. I don't hate gay people, but we don't need to be having them marry and be allowed to get children. They will mess up those children's lives. He just said a lot of bad things, not in a way like he wasn't like, let's murder all the gays. But it was almost worse than that, you know? It was like, let's not recognize their relationships. Let's, oh, how dare we put a child with them? And I agreed with it because I just agreed with everything I'd been raised to believe. So I was vocal on, like, social media about anti-gay rights. I would have discussions with my friends where I would try to get them to see my side about how there shouldn't be gay rights. We shouldn't allow gay people to marry. It's wrong. It's an abomination. It's uh, the puzzle pieces don't fit together. There are all these things my dad would say, and I would just regurgitate them up until I left my small town and left that world and kind of started losing my religion. I was super like... I didn't do it on myself. I didn't come up with it myself to answer your question, but I believed it. I believed it was wrong. I had a lot of self-hate, you know, as a lot of queer people do. I hated myself because I had this true thing about me, but I had been told, you're going to burn in hell for this. You will literally spend eternity in the in a place, a fire pit that will torture you and give you pain for all of eternity because you're gay. It's so great to to for you to come out, like knowing 
that there's these risks and also having someone to talk to you about that because a lot of people are like they're cool they're my parents they'll love me but it's like you also have to be prepared because my parents were cool but I was prepared for like the possibility that they might not be because that's a very it's a very real thing and you know it's also cool because some people come out bad reaction and then they go back into the closet and be like it's just never jk this didn't happen and then they're still stuck in that duality of like i know this is who i am but i can't be that or trying to make relationships happen uh with the opposite sex um i was just talking to sarah about this the other day but i was suicidal right before i moved and kind of decided to be myself and i i was still suicidal when i knew i was gay and i wasn't out to anybody and i thought if i'm either gonna kill myself and die which most christians believe you know will send you to hell or I'm going to live a full life where I get to have fun and be in love with somebody perhaps and then go to hell. Why not just live the fun life? And so it's so weird, but like I kind of get came to like a not the fun. It was almost like being suicidal gave me the, and I in no way endorsing this. Um, but I just hit this point where I was rock bottom. I was like, I'm either going to kill myself or I'm going to be who I really am. I'm glad I, I chose the latter. How did you meet your partner? It's the same partner that y- you came out with, essentially, still with her. Mm-hmm. How did you guys meet? Uh, we met on OkCupid. She is a neurologist, and I have quite a few bits about how we like normally would never go together. I think a lot of people in my circle and a lot of people in her circle were a little puzzled at the matchup. And we pretty much instantly fell in love. She's the love of my life, and... Um, she's so smart. She helps me write some of my bits, a lot of my bits about her and about neurology. She'll, she'll do tags for me or she'll be like, this will be better or do it like this. And she's almost always right. She's actually a brilliant writer. That's cool. So she supports you totally supports you with comedy. That's awesome. Um, what do you guys see for champagne jamboree? Like what are your, what are your goals? Are you guys working on an album, a tour? Like, do you want to turn it into like a flight of the concords kind of thing? Like what's the ultimate dream? We are kind of taking it as it comes. We um, are both <laughs> very busy. Uh, we both have full-time jobs. Uh, we both perform our own comedy, still pretty heavy, and Champagne Jamboree. So if we could get rid of those full-time jobs and get a sponsorship, <laughs> I would love to see Champagne Jamboree. Like, what could we do? So right now we are just working on our own comedy and then performing together. And when things come up for Champagne Jamboree, we're kind of taking them. Or I think if, you know, I think our understanding, like if we just have like a killer song idea, like to get together and let's write it, let's see where we can add this. I totally agree with Sarah. Um, It would be nice if we could uh, get that full time going. Yeah, we've we've built up a little fan base, and I think that's exciting. A lot of people supported us to come to this uh, queer comedy festival that we're at, and we want to. Oh yeah, we have a podcast. Our podcast is called Champagne Jamboree, and um, we're putting a lot into that because we have fun doing it, and we think we're pretty good at that. Yeah, yeah. Tell us about your podcast. Like, what's the format? What do y'all do? You have guests. When we start our podcast, we always have a different guest on, um, somebody in the queer community, a lot of different types. We've had poets, musicians, drag queens, um, trans activists, uh, radio personalities, and we interview them. And a lot of times they end up telling a story and then we improvise a song. Based off that story. (laughs) 
It's pretty amazing. We have a lot of fun. It's It's been a little humbling for me um, as not a trained singer uh, where I can practice and have it down. In improv, you just have to be prepared for whatever comes out, comes out. So sometimes listening back, like I definitely will hit some off notes. But I hope that people think that is a little more endearing that we are improvising this and just having fun with it. And as far as improv goes, that's actually one of the things like I love to teach people to embrace the most is it's so okay to not be perfect. And it's still wonderful to listen to. Um, I've forgotten your question at this point. What was it? The format. Yeah. So then we sing a song. And then we have Jacob Randall. As a upcoming Twin Cities comedian, he does spill the rosé and he does some gay gossip. And then we have a caller or somebody in studio that does a little gay trivia. And that's it. It's a really fun, lighthearted podcast. I I will re-listen to our episodes all the time at our job. And I still laugh, even though I know exactly what's going to happen. It's a funny podcast. And it's also a podcast where we're giving queer people a platform similar to this one. That's awesome. And then can you guys talk a little bit about your process for writing songs? I'm always so interested uh, how uh, bands or groups write songs because I feel like if you're on your own, you can figure it out. Or like the Beatles, like, you know, John would just start going and Paul would just riff off of it. Like, do you guys just get together and, and just comes together? Or do you like write one piece and send it? And then so and then the other person's like, oh, yeah, I wrote this. And it just kind of comes together. Like, what's your what's your process for that and then also another question I'm just gonna keep asking questions um what's your process for comedy is your stand-up process or you're performing whatever other performances you guys do uh what's your process for that yeah normally we get together together to write our songs and one of us has kind of an idea of like like how beautiful Bemidji came. I was listening to this artist and she was really folksy and I just love the sound of it. And I'm like, Amanda, listen to the song. I, I really like this. And it, by no means like copied the song or anything, but it was like the, cause I can't pick the guitar up and show her what I want, you know? And then she liked it. And then we try to think of things, even though we're queer people doing it, we try to think of things that universally people can appreciate. So like our hit, beautiful Bemidji is all about going on a road trip with your loved one and how at the end you might not love them anymore. And it doesn't, you know, I think that's a way that we can bring our visibility and like we are like everyone else. Like, let me say it one more time for people in the back room, but it's an accessible way. So that's how we write. And then I am sorry, you asked us about that. So we kind of have an idea. Amanda will play something and she'll be like, do you like this? Or, you know, I think we should do this. And then and if we have an idea for a hook or a chorus, we just build off of that. Probably sometimes it takes us 30 minutes to write a song. Sometimes it'll take us getting together three or four times to get it really down. And then usually we take it, we record it, we listen to it, and then we go through and we'll start like, eh, we'll perform it and be like, that line really didn't get a laugh for a couple times. Now let's go back and like, could we do better? Usually we always can until we get it to where we like it. As a comedian, I really consider myself a scientist. That's how I go about it. I try something out and then if it doesn't work, try something else or tweak it and try it again or if it's not quite where I want it to be keep tweaking it that's how I write my songs too like Sarah was saying when we get out there and we perform together we record and when we go back if we're like this got a giggle whereas the line surrounding it you know got roarous laughter we got to change that we can't have a the slump 
Um, and then we also do a little bit of storytelling. I have found as a comedic musician, you can't just necessarily pound the audience with laughter the same way you can like if you're a one-liner stand-up comedian. With music, and particularly with comedic music, we're asking the audience to listen to our music, our melody, and also to very closely listen to the lyrics. You can't get the jokes unless you hear what we're saying. And I think that takes a little bit of extra focus than just a regular stand-up comedian. So we have to tell the story. We have to let them know what, what they're going to expect. And so in that since I, like I said, I consider myself a storyteller and I consider myself a scientist, you know, just doing experiments, you know, try anything. That's how crazy off the wall stuff gets started. And then you're like, how did they come up with that? It's like, I don't know. It started out as something completely different. Now it's a song about butts and cake and candles, you know. We should make a song about butts and cakes and candles. Yeah, I was like, I'm interested in all of those things. So let's. We can make that happen. Let's get back to the golf. As a kid, how do you get into golf? Like I, well, I never played. The reason I never played golf is because my grandfather was super into golf, and he took my brother and my male cousin to play golf, and he got them golf sets. And then I said, Grandpa, why don't I get one? He said, You're a girl. And then I said, fuck stupid golf. And even though golf had nothing to do with it and golf didn't know, um, <laughs> I've never like played grown up golf. I've done like putt putt and I've been at the driving range, which is a lot of fun. But how like how old were you and like what what made you be like, I want to play golf out of all games with sticks that you can hit balls with? It didn't happen this way when I first started. But by the time I ended, I hated golf, too. So we have that. In co- I was like, fuck golf, too. You know, this kind of relates back to when I was telling my coming out story. I was such a daddy's girl. We're very much alike. I am almost a spinning, you know, personality of my father. I wanted to please him so bad. I just, I wanted to make him happy. He was really into sports. And when I was about, oh, nine or 10-ish, he started taking me out to the driving range. And he was like, you're pretty good. And he didn't ask me. He just started putting me in tournaments. He's like, you're going to play in tournaments. I was like, great anything to make dad proud of me. I was a little, we were a cliche, you know, he was living vicariously through me. And I, I wasn't stopping to think, oh, I'm a kid. I should be having fun. I hate this. Why am I spending, you know, I'm 12 years old. I'm spending all my weekends at tournaments. I'm sometimes missing school. I'm, um, you know, if I didn't practice enough, you know, I would come home and they would be like, gee, you're home early. You know, it was like that. My parents moved to a golf course, mostly for my golf career. You know, my whole family, my sister wasn't necessarily treated very good. We would go on like family vacations that were golf tournaments and they would leave her at home and be like, we can't afford to take you. It, it was just my whole life was golf. And I, that's probably part of the reason I hated it because I felt so much pressure. But I was really good at it. And when you're really good at something, people expect you to keep doing it. And I also got a big ego boost. I was in the papers. People knew how I was. I got a scholarship to college. And the whole plan for me and my family was I'm going to be the Tim Tebow of the LPGA. I'm going to grow up and be a famous Christian athlete, win people to the Lord. And let's just uh, compartmentalize this little part about how you look super gay and also are attracted to women. And you're really this lesbian. I was in a sport I mean, a lot of sports with women, there's lesbians, and I was constantly dodging people knowing that I was gay. My coach's husband, multiple times, we would have dinner at their house sometimes, and he'd be like, Amanda, are you sure you're not gay? (laughs) And of course, that was like terrifying. I would just be sitting there like about to pee my pants like, no, don't say the thing that I know is true. And and then I'm sure like, it was just, um, 
and there was I found out later on and we're good friends now another girl on my team was closeted too and my team my college team would sometimes have these ignorant conversations where we would all go me including oh my god isn't it so weird that we're the only golf team that doesn't have any lesbians I'm starting these conversations but I'm going home and like rubbing one out to my teammates you know like I'm like yeah I'll share a hotel room with you you know like Oh darn! They didn't have two beds. <laughs> but what what got you out of golf? Like, I, even if you hated it, like there sounds like there was a lot riding on you playing golf. Like, what was the ultimate? Like, I'm fucking done. I played professionally about two and a half years, and it was really tough. It was very similar to being a comedian. You got to be your own business. You got to get sponsors. You, you know, it's not just about the the performance or the act of golf. There was a lot of other stuff in it, and I was bad at it. And I struggled, and I actually, I don't know how many of your listeners play or if even Sarah and you will know this, but um, there's a, a phenomenon in golf that happens usually to old dudes called the yips. And it is essentially a physical flinch that you get at some point in your swing. It mostly happens to people when they're putting, um, which is the thing you do on the greens. I started getting the yips in my full swing. I would have a driver in my hand. I'm at a tournament where all this money is on the line. I've paid all this money to travel there. I'm in whatever, Virginia, on this beautiful course. My sponsor is caddying for me and people are, a crowd is watching. And I have a driver in my hand and right before I make contact with the ball, instead of hitting it the way I should, the way I know I've been, the way I've always hit it, I flinch and hit, you know, hook it 150 yards out of bounds and get a nine on the hole. And and I kept blowing up at tournaments and I couldn't get rid of this physical flinch. And it was all mental. There was nothing physically wrong with me. I later on realized it was because of the pressure that I was putting on myself, you know, and I just couldn't take it. My body was like, it totally makes sense when I look back at the time it made me so it contributed to wanting to kill myself because I felt like such a failure because this is what I was supposed to do I was supposed to be good but I was out on this that tour I was struggling I wasn't making the cuts you know you're paying $500 entry fee to a tournament you don't have enough gas to get to the next tournament if you don't make the cut what do you do you know you call mom and dad or you call your sponsors it's humiliating and so I um, wanted to kill myself and I had a plan and everything and it was also because I hated it and because I was closeted and I was pretending to be this anti-gay rights conservative Christian. After my last season, I took a lesson with a pro. I was like, let me, I told my parents I was going to do it again because people were like, you had a rough year. Are you going to do this again? (laughs) And I was like, what are you talking about? (laughs) I had driven back from New York City to Oklahoma and I took this expensive lesson. These like, when you're a professional, all these pros, they're kind of all douchey. And they, this guy charged me like $250, but he was supposed to be an expert. So I go to this lesson that's $250 with this guy and it's a horrible experience. It's nothing is working. You know, I, I can't probably looking back again, cause it was all mental. It wasn't anything wrong with, you know, I've been playing for, you know, 15, 17 years at this point. I, I had what it takes. I genuinely believe that, but I, I, I shouldn't have been doing it. It wasn't my spot. I'm driving back and I start bawling my eyes out and I'm like, am I going to kill myself? I wanted to drive off a cliff on the highway in Oklahoma going like 75. I'm crying. And then, you know, that was part of the the motivation that got me to leave that world, to leave golf, to leave pretending to be straight, to leave pretending to be this religious person. And that's day I had that lesson, I drove home and I was like, am I going to kill myself or I'm going to quit? And I was like, I'm going to quit golf. And that was what started my you know, turnaround, you know, and I was still depressed. It was still hard. It was still another f- several years before I could be myself, but 
it was that day. It was that lesson. It was that, oh my God, I just put all of this into this and it just, it, it was such a shitty lesson and I knew it wasn't going to change. I think I knew that in my head. Nothing is going to change. I'm not going to succeed in this because I don't want to succeed in this. I'm, I'm miserable. I don't want to be a successful. I would still be miserable if I was successful. Are you able to, to play golf for fun? Like after all of that? Because it's a thing that was such a big part of your life. Like are you able to go back and just fuck around for fun? No, actually. I When I walked away, I... I, I just didn't want to t- do it again. I didn't want, I was not interested in that. It was such a miserable experience at the end. So the only time I have touched a golf club actually, uh, when the love of my life that I've talked about, when we first started dating, she found out that I, uh, I was a golfer in my past and she was like, um, you know, I, I've planned this date for us. It's a, it's a surprise where I'm going to take you. It's a surprise. And I almost immediately knew in my head, like, uh, I can smell where this is going. Like, this bitch is going to take me to a driving range or some shit. And so sure enough, we're on our way and I see, I start to see the golf course and I was like, I knew it. I knew it. And she was like, you know, what's wrong? And I had to admit to her that the smell of grass makes my stomach hurt. And it's such a weird physical symptom, but I know that's from like all those years of that, you know, stress and everything. But she was like, just give it a chance. Just give it a chance. So I hit probably three balls on the driving range and I, I rem- I hated how horrible I hit them because I hadn't played in like three or four years. And I, because I didn't hit perfect shots, I stopped after three and I sat there and I watched her and I was like giving her tips and then we left and she's never done that again. And I've never uh, touched a golf club again. My coach just hit me up recently. Um, one of my old, my old college coach, they're going to be in Minneapolis for a tournament. She wants me to come out and watch. I think I'm going to do it. You know, I think it'll be a little bit redemptive for me. But I'm not going to fucking play. (laughs) Do you have any songs about golf? Because I feel like this is so ripe, all of this stuff. Um, Like being in the closet and being on a golf team that also... You're welcome. (laughs) No, it's it's, it's been so fun hanging out with you guys. Like, this is... Like I said, I usually interview one-on-one, so I didn't know how this was going to go. But y'all... Because you guys gel. Like, it's so... It's been so cool where you're like, wait this part of your story you left that out and it's like it's so cool but yeah thank you guys um are you guys are you going to the bar crawl later today um i think we're gonna set that one out uh (laughs) but we're gonna go early to the shows we're performing tonight and we're gonna drink our asses off with all the other queer comics and just have a good time with everybody i'll be drunk with you guys tonight so thank you champagne jamboree and oh yeah and let everyone know where they can find you guys you can find us on instagram at the champagne jamboree YouTube, Facebook, Twitter. What's our Twitter handle? The Sham Jam Comedy. C-H-A-M-J-A-M-C-O-M-E-D-Y. On our podcast, Amanda makes me spell everything (laughs) out. That's good because sometimes comics are like, and you can find me at blah, blah, blah. And then I have friends that will message and they're like, I I don't understand how to find this person. I love their interview. I thought they were funny. Can't find them. Yeah, we, you know, uh, the different platforms we sometimes have to create <laughs> different uh, names, but you can almost always Google like Instagram, Champagne Jamboree or um, YouTube. But as Sarah said, we're YouTube.com slash Champagne Jamboree, C-H-A-M-P-A-G-N-E-J-A-M-B-O-R-E-E. I did it. I didn't know if I could do it. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say when you play to like bars with a bunch of drunk people, they probably like want to follow you and those they're like, those are hard words. Like, <laughs> like a lot of words. You, another song for you guys spelling out your name. <laughs> I'm just right. I'm just writing them. I'm going to, I'm going to join Champagne Jamboree. All right. Uh, thank you guys. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you, Amanda. Thank cool. you, Amanda. I got a handshake out of this. Hey. All right. 
so much i felt uh, thank you champagne jamboree for sharing your world with us thank you amanda costner sarah mcpack i know we had we were laughing we're crying we had a lot of beautiful moments there and i really appreciate the opportunity to get to know y'all and for you guys to share your story with everybody else special thanks to joseph fallon and ryan golub for your help editing and producing the show thanks to all our friends and supporters out there you could find us on social media near and queer to my heart except twitter we're queer to my heart 
You can catch Greetings from Queer Mountain, a live queer storytelling show in New Orleans, Austin, and New York City. And coming soon to San Francisco. Check out our Facebook page for more information. Bye, y'all! Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact... You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.